Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing our 200 episodes. Woo! <laughs> Fuck yeah. You get that? You normally, you know, oh, normally say... Sorry, Matt. I was very slow there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, our 200th episode, it certainly is. So uh, we started about three years ago. In fact, almost exactly three years ago. And uh, since then, we've done 199 episodes. Today being episode 200. Mm. So yeah, it's come a quite a long way like at the very start i think uh one weekend i just said to you oh let's why not let's just do a podcast and you said yeah, yeah. and you yeah. rolled with it and then a week later um you asked me are we recording this weekend i'm like yeah. shit he actually wants to do a podcast <laughs> Mate, it was one of those things where we uh i guess it was just a test at first we wanted to try it out we both love listening to podcasts uh we both thought the podcasters were pretty cool and we wanted to be like them and we just went for it hit record and Admittedly, it was pretty weak at the start, but we uh, sort of did it as like a 10-episode test because we thought, you know, the worst case is we'll read 10 books, we'll retain more than we normally would, we'll learn this new skill of podcasting, we'll probably improve our communication skills, both speaking and listening, we'll improve our confidence a bit, and then maybe number six or seven on the list is maybe someone might listen. Mm. Yeah, that idea of like we, we just kept on tinkering from the very start and then over time... I think it got better. Yeah. Some people might prefer the early episodes when it was really just red raw and us <laughs> singing and rapping along to making up bullshit songs. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely, uh, it's certainly come a long way. The first episode and probably the first 20 were like, we literally just hit record, talked a lot of shit and then hit stop with uh, not much more thought or planning beyond that. And so we've got a lot more serious about it, putting in a lot more time and effort and thinking into it. Uh, but it was interesting to go back and listen to some of those old apps and listen to some of those songs, especially. What's the uh, what's the best thing that you've gotten away from this that you've uh, taken into? Mate, the, question the without studio? notice is that that wasn't on the run sheet. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> I think the best uh, thing for me is probably just that it's just become a big project in that it started with very low effort, low ri- uh, low risk, low sort of time involvement, and then gradually it's ratcheted up over time. And I think that's probably the way to approach most projects from now on in that if at the very start you said, oh, you're going to read, to make a podcast, you have to read eight to 10 hours a week. You have to spend two to three hours making notes and then an hour editing notes and then half an hour discussing and then two hours editing and two hours recording. I'd probably say, no, I get, get stuffed. Mm. But uh, because we gradually, we started with like, let's just hit record and built up from there. Um, we probably didn't even notice how much extra work we were doing. So it was a, I think for me, that's just the the meta approach of how to how to approach a new project. Mm. What about you? I like that. Yeah, I should have thought of uh, <laughs> if I'm asking the question. Uh, for me, I think it's it's been huge. Just uh, the amount of stuff I've learnt. Like it's mm. it's hard to uh, really consciously understand how much how different you are from where you are now to where you started. Mm before these 200 books like what how did i look at the world it was completely mm. different i was uh I look at the world completely different now i've got a much better understanding of a lot of situations and social situations and i'm not as uncomfortable around you know big dogs doing big talk because you can just see through some of their shit sometimes yep. which is a really big deal so it's just a lot of it's about learning and then also um, in terms of self-esteem that a project actually uh took off a little bit mm. and got a bit of traction because at the very start it was just a graveyard of me just trying to do shit on weekends and everyone thought oh jonesy's a weirdo yeah. he's just doing weird <laughs> shit and um nothing really worked out early days 
Yeah, I like it very much, very much so. So this episode, what we're going to do is we've gone back and listened to all of our um, past interviews that we've done with some of the big dog uh, international best-selling authors that we've been lucky enough to speak to. And we've got a bit of a recap of sort of the best 20 or so one to two minute snippets of what they said. Um, but we, before we get stuck in, we want to get a bit of feedback from you guys. Having done 200 episodes now, we've put a little a quick survey together to get some feedback both on the past of you know what we've done well or not so well, but also looking to the future, like what sort of books you're looking to hear next uh, and if any of the guests we spoke to, you'd like to hear again for round two. Mm, or if there's anything you, any parts of our style, uh, we're still... We still think it's pretty early days for us, so we're happy to tinker and uh, change stuff around if it's going to improve the show in the long run. Yeah, definitely. So you can uh, do that at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Uh, We're only going to put a couple of questions in there, but it'd be very, very valuable for us to get that feedback at this sort of inflection point of, you know, 200 episodes. Uh, We've done a lot, but there's still a, a lot of room for improvement, so we'd love to hear from you guys. Let's get stuck into it, mate. The first... Uh, snippet that we're going to play is from our very first ever interview with uh, a big man named uh, Matthew Michael Witch. And it was our very first interview. It actually took us seven months to get the first interview. So the first seven months was just us two doing our own eps, getting a lot of rejections, mm. getting a lot of no's, sending a lot of really shitty, arrogant emails that uh, are pretty painful to go back and read. Mm. Um, but we eventually got the first one, Absolutely. which is big Matthew. We must uh, give a shout out to our man Daniel from Kenya. <laughs> so at the very start, he was our virtual assistant. I think we read the four-hour work week early and we're just yeah. uh, obsessed about assistance. So he, he was the one who went through our whole Goodreads list and saw our top 100 books and then sent out 100 emails. And then of all of them, thanks to Michael, yeah. Oh, Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> oh, <fuck>. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's going to come into play very soon, actually. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, mate, we nearly got Tim Ferriss in the early days and then, like, his assistant responded to us, um, but I'm very glad that we didn't because that would have been a stinker. Oh, um, yeah. That would have been painful. Uh, Even this <laughs> will be painful to listen to, but let's, uh, let's roll it. This is our very first ever interview question that we ever asked. Matthew, good morning. It's, uh, it's Adam and Adam. How you going, mate? Good, good morning, guys. How are you? <laughs> good, thank you. We realize you're... Um, son is also Adam. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Absolutely. So it's a name I'm very fond of. <laughs> we'll take that. Mate, we have to ask you, how, how do you pronounce your surname? We've heard you a few times on YouTube and we've heard Michael Witz, Michael Witz, Michael. Yeah, Michael Witz, like, uh, like the name Michael and then Witch, like uh, Witch on a Broomstick. <laughs> Michael Witz. There's a, a lot of people seem to get that wrong, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, what they end up doing is they focus on the last name and then end up calling me Michael. So that's (laughs) that's usually what happens. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that one up. Sorry, even Matthew. We spent um, way, way, way too long talking about that. Mate, no one one really cares about us asking what his surname is. So it was the first. That was a very. Sh- that was a shit question. A very weak start. Uh, thankfully, though, we picked up from there. We were able to get some um, some great juice out of uh, Matthew Michael Witch, who wrote the book that we did, Life in Half a Second. Yeah, this is a this is a really good book, actually. A very short book um, for a very relatively unknown author. Mm. That's how we got him on for the first one. <laughs> if I was brutally honest, but he speaks about the uh, the, the dream box, which is a really cool metaphor. For I think that a lot of people, as they grow older, they start closing in 
on their dream box. And it's something that you have as someone very young. It's very easy to look in. But as uh, as Michael, oh, fuck, oh, as, as Matthew's <laughs> about on. to tell us, uh, you know, it's it's it gets harder and harder to look in there as the responsibilities of life kind of stack up as we get older and older. The feeling that I get from these people is that once they enter the corporate world, they um, saddle themselves with obligations. You know, there's the mortgage on the house, there's the loan on the car, then there's marriage, there's a child, there's tuitions at schools and so forth. And the corporate lifestyle provides that uh, certainty or at least that illusion of certainty that you're going to have that paycheck and you know you can pay your bills and so forth and then then it becomes very very difficult to kind of break that paradigm and say okay now I'm going to follow my passion because to follow your passion you might have to get rid of the job which provides the income which pays Mm -hmm. for all of the obligations that you've developed and that becomes kind of the trap that and and the obligations grow in time kids get older there's more kids there's greater tuitions, there's, you know, a bigger house, a bigger car, and so forth. So I feel like people just fall into this trap where it becomes very difficult and very risky for them to go and step out and pursue something. Whereas when I was 18, I didn't have any of those obligations. I lived with my parents, I didn't have a house, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. So it was really easy and much less risk involved in becoming an entrepreneur and in doing something you're, you're passionate about. Yes, I think he's spot on in that, you know, when we're young, our eyes are open, we're dreamers, our dream box is is wide open and it's full of dreams and then as we gradually add more and more obligations into the mix, the lid starts to close and close and close and eventually we might close that lid completely and it gets too painful to open it up. So that was our very first interview uh, which was all about entrepreneurship and and business and speaking to this millionaire businessman and our second interview uh, was a complete 180. We spoke to Timber Hawkeye, uh, a Buddhist monk who lives in a caravan basically and lives mm. off about five bucks a day <laughs> by, the, by the sounds of it. Mm. And the big thing that he talked about here was one of the, the main tenets of, of Buddhism, I guess, is that pain is inevitable but suffering is optional in that we don't, it's all a matter of perspective. It doesn't, it's not so much what happens to us, but how we react. We've got no control over the outside world. We've got no control of the objective experience that happens outside of us. The only thing that we can control is our subjective interpretations and how we react. So, you know, the pain is always going to be there no matter what, but it's up to us to decide if we suffer or if we if we don't. One of the parts I really liked, I guess, something along the lines of pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Yes, that's if you were to encapsulate all of the Buddhist teachings into one sentence, that is it. That pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Sorry, can you tell us a little bit more? So yeah. How do you choose um, not to suffer? <laughs> well, you realize that the suffering is a choice. So that's the first thing. Like if you're um, stuck in traffic, for example, or if you're going through a hard time, um, I think a really good example of this is um, when a man said, I was sad because I didn't have shoes, but then I met a man who didn't have feet. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that 
suff- that you realize that we create so much of our own suffering in our mind because we create a story and we label our situation and we say, this is bad, this is horrible, this is wrong. I'm stuck in traffic. And it's like, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. You're part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah. saying that you're stuck in traffic, it implies that everybody else is in your way and you're creating your own suffering by thinking that you are somehow superior to others and that this shouldn't happen. Yeah. But when you step outside of that, then yeah, the discomfort of going two miles an hour is unfortunate. But you're, you'd be like, you know, I'm just going to pop in an audio book and I'm going to enjoy this mm-hmm. time, yeah. or I'm going to sit here and get angry and yell and honk my horn and give the finger to everyone who drives <laughs> by. It's like, yeah. so it's about perspective. So I think pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. It makes you realize the pain is there. Yeah. But whether we identify with it and create a story around it, and that's totally optional. Yeah, it's still pretty awkward there. And you, you, <laughs> you really liked a few of his gags there, yeah, did you I actually? Know, I thought they were pretty good gags, but mate, some of those questions we asked were very awkward. Yeah, very awkward. <laughs> I, I really think it's a really good point, the, the idea of perspective taking. He had the example then of some person without, or with shitty shoes looking at someone without any shoes as their mm. perspective. It's like all of us, we can, you know, it's common for us to keep up with the Joneses effect. We're always looking Ooh, yeah. Yes, at those, uh, keeping up with the Adam Joneses, yeah. <laughs> maybe not me, you don't have to worry too much about that, but that's a choice or like the flip side of that is I just like came up with this earlier, let me know what Ooh, you yeah. think, keeping up with the Kenyans will give you endless Ooh, gratitude. Keeping up with the Kenyans. So keeping up with the Joneses, looking for oh, yeah. someone in your culture who's maybe doing better, but keeping up with the Kenyans, so you're just looking at everyone who's doing worse than you and uh, you know, that's the difference between suffering and gratitude. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you like I mean, it? I think there's something there. It probably needs a bit of work still. Uh, but there's something, the there. <laughs> something there. Is it politically there. incorrect? Yeah, it's probably a little bit, a little bit, um, not, <laughs> I think it's all not right. completely PC, but it's all Do right. Do we have any Kenyans listening? Uh, is Daniel's mate still listening? Oh, oh we, mate, we didn't say Daniel. Um, we got rid of him in the end because he just spammed our website full of <laughs> dick pills and stuff. He put up a whole bunch of random posts. Daniel was really so we weird got rid of him. <laughs> And when he was running, my, oh shit, this is a bit of a side topic. Yeah. But um, when, I, when I was single, he was running my Tinder and. Uh, he so he was running my Tinder, speaking to all uh, girls on that to try and get me dates, and I didn't really care too much. And his English wasn't that good, but he kept just saying to every chick on it, "What did he say?" I'm, I'm restless. That's I'm right. Restless. I'm restless. <laughs> and so this is coming from me, like a Western bloke. The chick thought, and like oh, this dude's a weirdo. Yeah. Anyway, so we got him off the the Tinder as well. The, yeah. He started strong, but he um we had to get rid of him in the end. Yeah. <laughs> the next uh, we'll skip a few we, we, we've picked out the best uh, I think we've done about 51 or 52 interviews we picked out the best 18 or 20 or so the next one we did uh, is season 2 uh, and kicked it off with JP Sears who's the long red headed dude does funny satirical videos bit of a viral sensation and it was actually a, a similar sort of theme in that he says here uh, we need to let go of that which served us but no longer serves us so where we've got to now, obviously, we've built up a lot of story and a lot of identity and a lot of ideas uh, around who we are and what we do and how we should do it. And it's got us to where we are. But sometimes we, we really need to be analytical and look at that and think, do, should I keep holding on to these things and keep, are they going to keep moving me forward or should I start to change my mind? So you need to be open to firstly assessing these things and then secondly, be open to changing your ideas letting go of some of those things from the past and adding a few new things in. So the idea of uh, 
let go of that which served you that no longer serves you has a lot to do with, I think, our beliefs and who we think we are. So I believe there is incredibly little correlation with who we are and who we think we are. So yet we all have beliefs of self, and I dare say they serve us when we adopt them. You know, when I was three years old, I thought I, who I am is my mommy's little boy. Yeah. That, that's who I am. And if I didn't, I mean, that's kind of an easy one to let go of. But if I didn't let go of that, like I'd be 36 still functioning as a three-year-old mama's boy. Um, it, it served me awesomely when I was three doesn't serve me when I'm 36. Yeah. And then, you know, that that's obviously a very easy example, but I think other examples of things we adopt that serve us once upon a time, but probably have a shelf life mm-hmm. would be what we do to grow ourselves, to heal ourselves. Because a strategy that we use to grow ourselves guess what? If it works, it's going to make us grow, which if we do the math, that means eventually we're going to outgrow it. Yeah. It's like, you know, being in grade five serves us well, but we freaking outgrow that yeah. after t- two or three years of being in grade five. <laughs> like, like, I think I mastered that. <laughs> but it's comfortable being in grade five. We've mastered the material. So it can be very tempting to stay attached to Mm. what served us while we still think that it's serving us because we're stuck in the past because Mm. it did serve us. So we still think it does. So it's like if we're in the middle of the ocean with a life preserver, you know, stormy seas, ship goes down. Awesome. Our life preserver is going to be serving us well. Mm. But if a couple decades goes by, that life preserver is going to be waterlogged. It's Mm. actually going to be a weight pulling us down. But if in our mind we're still attached to our story that says this life preserver helped save my life when the shimp went down, therefore it's still saving my life, we can be holding on to the anchor while thinking it's a buoyant uh, force in our Mm -hmm. life. And we start to wonder, why is there friction? Mm -hmm. You know, why am I not happy? Why are things not working well? I would dare say the things are fine. But what we're holding on to is limiting us. Yeah, I really like that letting go of the things that don't serve us. Because if you're gonna, if if you're someone who wants to grow, inherent in that is going to change. And as you change, the old version of yourself needs to die a little bit. So it's a little bit scary uh, on the road to growth. But Big JP is all about it, man. So at this point now, we've probably done what ten or twelve interviews or so. Uh, obviously, we're getting a little bit more rep. We're getting a little bit more practice in. Uh, getting better and better and better guests. But this one here was a, a massive inflection point. This was almost exactly 12 months into the show. We got the big man, Seth Godin. Mm, you're number one. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, you shot off the email. You put We put a lot of effort into that. I think mm. in the email, it wasn't just the normal one. You actually had a, uh, we laid out all Seth's books so he knew we were legit fans. Yeah. And how many books has he got? Like 20 of them. Yeah, yeah uh, I've got them all. Yeah. So that was in the signature or just below the signature as well. And uh, he said, yep, yep, we're ready to rock and roll three days time at this time. And we just yeah. uh, made it work. Yeah. Did the interview and had a bit of Johnny Walker after to yeah. celebrate. <laughs> Mate, we did it at like 6 or 7 a.m. and then smashed a, a Johnny Blue label yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Man, I think he actually said it when he sent the email. He said, 
it was about six days we didn't hear back from him and then he said sorry for the delay are you guys free tomorrow and mm. we're like yeah of course yep. <laughs> yeah we're free uh <laughs> it's extraordinary how many people will eagerly give up their freedom uh they go into debt because it gives them boundaries and helps them know what to spend they uh sign up for a specific kind of course in college because there's homework and because there's tests that having someone tell us what to do has been built into our education system from the beginning that we are trained to know that we can succeed if we know what's on the test mm -hmm. but if there's a test it means you don't really have freedom so when we talk about the freedom the freedom to create you know let's say you're going to try to make a life as a musician it's tempting to start a cover band because a cover band gets you off the hook and prevents you from having to deal with some of the issues of what you wrote that <laughs> right and, and and so of the million musicians you and I might listen to in a given year 900,000 of them have traded their freedom and tried to make music that sounds like someone else they want to be the next Bob Dylan not this Tom Hopkins and the internet has opened the door for an enormous amount of freedom in the way we make a career in how we uh interact with the world in what we say and the music we make or listen to and we relentlessly give it up we click on clickbait we read the popular stuff we try to fit in um, and I'm against it and I've devoted my career to being against it mm -hmm. lots of people are waiting to get picked because as I said it lets you off the hook picking yourself takes no time whatsoever picking yourself well is what Steve Pressfield's book, The War of Art, is about, and his other book, Do the Work. And in those books, what he argues is that sometimes we pick ourselves to do some giant impossible project, because that's another form of hiding. Well, how can you expect me to have accomplished anything? I picked this project. You know, I, I was on the airplane the other day, and a, the flight attendant was a big fan. And he was talking to me. He said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this job soon and start my own thing. I said, what are you going to start? He said, an indoor golf center. I said, an indoor golf center, it's going to cost you $5 million to start an indoor golf center. Mm. He said, yeah, I know. It's going to take a long time. And I said, well, why don't you just start something on the weekends that doesn't cost any money at all to start? Mm. And he looked at me. He had never, it had never occurred to him that he could do that, which is, of course, ridiculous because he's a smart guy. The reason it had never occurred to him is once it occurs to him, he has to do it. Because <laughs> it's not a, it's not a dream anymore. You can start on Saturday, yeah. right? You you can you can go to five garage sales, buy a bunch of old plates, sell them on eBay, make a profit, do it again next week, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, and the next thing you know, a year from now, you have enough money to buy an indoor golf center. But of course, you don't want to because who wants an indoor golf center? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got some really interesting career advice there, old Seth. Like the you know. When I was before, I probably read Seth's books and uh, got to chance to speak to him. You, you know, for a lot of people, you think the uh, fifty-hour, sixty-hour work weeks and just the traditional corporate jobs, uh, being in law and engineering and, and all of this, uh, has a huge utility. But Seth's style is completely different. Where you can actually build scarcity and value and a brand through projects that are you know, required by a certain niche and, and type of people. So there's just two different ways of doing things, uh, of getting started. And, um, you know, what you will learn would fit into the, the Seth category mm. for sure. Yeah, so we've done uh, 
five of Seth's books, I think, on the podcast. The Dip, Tribes, Purple Cow, Poke the Box, and This is Marketing. And there's uh, still a couple to go. So there's one big one, which is, is next up for us, mate, Lynchpin, uh, which we'll have to do yeah. as the next Seth book. And that's uh, it's not so much about just... Uh, you know, not along the lines of you know, quit your job and do a project on the side whatsoever. But just, uh, I guess the the shift from being the person who does what they're told, and you know, you've got a job and you do it, to you know, more of the poke the box style of taking the initiative and starting something else. You know, so thinking for yourself and taking that responsibility, taking that ownership, and not just being another cog in the machine. Mm. Yeah, and it sounds like. It's, it's so so much better, obviously, his style, but our automatic choice is, as he was saying there, is like to not do that. It's mm. to be sitting down, told what to do, yeah. get into debt, uh, and just follow this merry-go-round of just predictability that's coming in the future, right? But uh, it's so obviously more painful, that road, but oh, you know, it's just the, it's the default checkbox view. Yeah, yeah it yeah, is easier sure. in a way. Um, mate, and we made a bit of an error. We almost got him back for round two. Mm. So about nine months ago... <sighs> When I first heard that he was, um, this is marketing was coming out in about three months' time from that point. And we got in touch and he said, Cool, can we do a round two, promote the new book? He's like, Yeah, cool, let's do it. Do you want to do it now or do you want to like wait and we'll do it when the book comes out? And I thought, Oh, we'll maintain our, you know, integrity, journalistic integrity. We always like to read the book first and then talk about the book um, rather than just a lot of other shows which pretend to read the book. So we said, <laughs> Oh, we'll wait. And then we waited and, uh, he was too busy. <laughs> so we yeah, it fell apart. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Oh, well. Mate, the, uh, another one we had next up is uh, Big Bad Franz Johansson, who was the author of The Medici Effect and The Click Moment, which uh, when I first read The Click Moment, Matt, it was, it was um, one of my faves. It was a phenomenal book. And it's still very high in our top 50 um, best books of all time as well. So, yeah, The Click Moment, uh, when I first read it, it really blew my mind because it was the first time I came across this idea of that the whole world's uncertain uh, and the way to capitalize on this uncertainty is to place bets and then eventually if you place enough bets, it's just a whole game of probability. Sooner or later, one of those bets is going to take off and this is what he calls is a click moment. He's got a whole bunch of different examples uh, in the book but it really changed my perspective about how to, how to do some things. Uh, we create click moments by inviting difference into our lives. So uh, let's take an example that I, that I think drives this point home um, pretty quickly. When, but most people that, have, uh, that are listening to this have been exposed to a game called Angry Birds. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and it's kind of out of fashion now, but it, but, but it was a game changer for both the iPad and the and iPhone. It, it revealed to the world that there was a much larger industry around gaming on these type of handheld devices that people had even imagined. It was downloaded, you know, hundreds of millions, of billions uh, across the world. And people looked at it and went like, wow, it's like it was an overnight success. Uh, it was just brilliant. And it is a brilliant game. It is as gorgeous graphics and, 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 and addictive play levels and you get to you get to kill, you get to kill pigs uh, with birds. Like, like, who wouldn't want to do that? And the thing about this is, right, is that uh, if they were that brilliant, why did they wait eight years to do it? Because mm. Angry Birds was this company's 50-second game. Yeah. And the message here to anybody listening to this is if you try something 52 times, you'll have a good shot at exceptional success as well. Mm. And that's really what it comes down to. Success, when stripped off of all the legends and myths, are 
basically a statistics game. I love this notion of the fact that Picasso made more crappy artwork than virtually any other artist that has lived <laughs> at this point. Like, and he did. I mean, he made over 50,000 works of art in his lifetime. And we, I mean, most we of them suck. We, we get a fraction, <laughs> yeah, most of them suck, right? So, so this, this idea is one that... Uh, so now, let's say that you now acknowledge this. How do you incorporate that into your life? How do you incorporate it into a, into a strategy? It follows, by necessity, it follows that you have to try hmm. more bets. I really like this uh, approach and then I think it's a different type of persistence. You know, persi- One type of persistence is thinking, hey, I've got the best idea. I'm going to go for it and stick to it until it, until it works. Hmm. But this other type of persistence says a bit more humbly, look, you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. So you've got to try a whole bunch of different things to find out in the real world, not just in your mind, what's going to work. So it's not the persistence of sticking with one thing, but the persistence of each time something doesn't work, try the next one. So persistence of continually trying things that may or may not work. Mm, yeah, he's got some really good ideas there. I've, mate, to be honest, I really think he put a bit of salt and pepper on his Picasso quote there. 50,000. 50,000. I think it was in originals as well. I mean, that's. No, I don't believe it. It's th- what, three a year, roughly, just below. Oh, not. No. Three well, a year, yeah, not paintings. Over 50 years. Yeah, but even three three a day yeah. for 50 years. He's, the What was the life expectancy back then? Mate, if someone just added yeah. a bit of salt and pepper in yeah. the 18th century. And then from there, <laughs> uh, Adam Grant and Franz, they're quoting this person from the 18th century or something. No one's written, drawn 50,000 anything in their no, whole life. Little mate. drawings. I don't want to take long. No, nah, mate. It, nah. Just didn't happen. <laughs> well, mate, I, I, I'm sticking by it. And the, the more things you try, the better you're going to get at it. There's no doubt 50, about it. 50,000 is a bit over the top. But anyway, he was great. And so was uh, Naomi, who, Naomi Simpson, who didn't come too far after that so she's a shark on shark tank australia she heads up red balloon an awesome business and uh yeah we were invited to the headquarters in sydney and uh, i felt first time i really felt pretty important in this podcast just walking around there and everyone just saw us going into naomi's office and yeah felt pretty felt (laughs) pretty special then that was actually so this is probably what 15 to 18 months in where we'd uh finally decided to increase uh the quality the sound quality where we bought a whole bunch of new mics, spent um, what a thousand bucks or so buying new mics and really flash equipment, and so and then we made this trip to Sydney where we interviewed four or five people uh, in person, face to face with the new mics. I reckon this was a real uh, a real inflection point here as well of uh, getting a lot more serious about it. And Naomi was one of those really sick first guests. Yeah, if you're not really excited to go to work or you find it's harder to get out of bed, you just begin to think, mm. is this where I want to spend my energy? Mm-hmm. I remember in my, was my 30s, it's a long time ago, whatever one it was, but I remember <laughs> thinking, gosh, these are the best years of my life. I've, I've been in business for 10 years or so. Where do I want to give my energy? Uh, and especially as you go into family and your priorities begin to change, you go, wow, I've got unencumbered time. I can give it to any particular activity. Where am I going to do that? I really believe that the most precious resource we have is our time. Mm -hmm. And often when you're young, you don't see that. You Mm -hmm. think you've got endless amounts of time, whereas actually that's the most precious resource. You can always earn more money. You cannot earn more time. 
So I, uh, the older I get, the stingier I get about my time. <laughs> time. I don't know how you guys got a podcast <laughs> That's what I was just for thinking, start. Actually. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just saying. Because I do, I get really stingy with my time because I have to focus on what I want to get done. Uh, so I think that there is a natural evolution to that if you get there. But, if, you know, somebody's going to lead these enterprises and you might find, well, that's actually where mm. I'm. I, I want to influence bigger audiences and bigger people and I can do it inside a big business. Mm. There is no one way. And I promise you, I think there's a little bit too much stardom around this whole entrepreneur yeah. thing um, and startups a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money yeah. and um, and not every idea is great there's more startups now than there's ever been before the ecosystem and people are chucking money at it mm. without necessarily really understanding the exit the outcome and money is not the answer no i do really like that idea that i think it is uh at the moment especially over the last couple of years seems to be almost like a bit of a fantasy a bit of fetishizing around startup and entrepreneurship and uh, yeah, I think she's probably right. There are probably too many people who uh, could potentially lose a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I really like how she spoke about uh, impermanence. It's something Ooh. that's come up a few times on the, on the podcast. But it's you know I think uh, as you get older, you got no choice but to look at how much time you got left. When you're in your sixties, seventies, or eighties, you're like, oh shit, I'm probably going to cark it soon. <laughs> but then if you are able to think about that very early days. Mm. In your 20s, 30s, 40s, I think you are a much, much, much higher probability of climbing the right ladder that's on the right wall as opposed to just climbing some any old ladder. Mm. And then you get to 60 or 70 and then you're like, shit, that was on the wrong wall the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that, mate. I like that one a lot. While we're in uh, Sydney during this trip, we also, uh, the great man Dan Ariely was also in Sydney at the same time. He was, um, he was traveling. He's written the book predictably irrational is his his biggest i guess most well-known book he's done a whole bunch of awesome ted talks which are very very popular as well millions and millions of views and mate we were able to uh sit down with him in his hotel room over a bottle of uh good australian wine and uh and have a have a good chat yeah mate he didn't like that wine did he, he didn't like that wine at all <laughs> nah nah well we're at that stage yeah uh, we're not wine connoisseurs so not we, we thought it tasted all right yeah I thought it was a on the upper end of my sort of. It was like a twenty buck wine. Most mm. most of the time, I'd buy like an eight to twelve dollar bottle. So I thought it was yeah. an expensive one. But in that same <laughs> in that same trip, though, right? He was uh, he was meeting with all the bank execs all across <laughs> Australia and meeting with us two idiots. So I'm guessing the rest of his trip, he was drinking the top top bloody shelf, yeah, red age for a couple of couple of centuries <laughs> kind of stuff, and comes to our yellow Glen. I'd say so, mate. And then we um. We went to the ballet with the, the great man afterwards as well. And along a similar vein, we thought, oh, we'll do the interview, then we'll take him to dinner, then we'll go to the ballet. So we loaded up the accounts, ready to go to a five-star restaurant and spend a couple of hundred bucks on, on a meal. And just as we were walking to the ballet, he saw a kebab shop on the side of the road and said, let's, yeah. let's get a kebab. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah, so procrastination is a, is a general problem about short-term versus long-term. Mm. Um, so, so think to yourself... Um, in the last month, uh, have you eaten more than you think you should? Yes. <laughs> yes. Exercise less than you think you should? Yes. Um, <laughs> texted while driving? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, not always wash your hands when you left the bathroom? Only if there's... Um, no. It depends who's watching. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, 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 it's actually something that people don't do, but really are mm. much more embarrassed. It's much more embarrassing <laughs> to admit than when you text and drive, right? Even yeah. though it's not yeah. that dangerous. And you can go on and on, right? Unsafe mm. sex, all, all kinds of things like that. And, and the reality is that with 
everything that has with short-term gratification versus mm. long-term benefit, we, we don't do it well. Mm. Yeah. And here's a very general example. Imagine I had the best chocolate in the world. And I said, you could have half a box now or a full box in a week. Half mm. now. And I kind of pass it around. So you could see it. You could smell it. Most people say, not worth waiting another week yeah. for a full box. I'll take the half box now. Mm. Case number two, I said, what would you rather have? A half a box of chocolate in a year or a full box of chocolate in a year and a week? Mm. It's the same question. Is it worthwhile waiting another week for another half a box of chocolate? But now people say, of course it is, right? <laughs> because in the future, we're wonderful people. We would exercise, we would diet, we'll take our medication. The future is full of just wonders. We don't get to live in that future, mm. right? We get to have good plans about the future, but in the present, we fail time after time after time. Yeah. It's because the present is tempting us in a very mm. different way. So if I say half a box of chocolate in a year, a full box of chocolate in a year in a week, you know, none of them has temptation. You're yeah. thinking rationally about it. When I say half a box of chocolate now, and you could see it, and you could smell it, mm. emotion basically mm. get invoked. And mm. now giving up something that you feel emotional about is very, very difficult. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's the basic issue with procrastination. In principle, we know what we want to do, but in the short term, we're tempted by all kinds of things, how to use our money, how to use our yes. time, and, and so on. Yeah, it's a big deal not giving in to instant gratification. Uh, you're always better doing it for the long term, but... Uh, listening to a behavioral economist, economist, you can actually really understand your irrationality toward giving into that short-term stuff. Yeah, definitely. Almost everything is going to be better if we wait to do it later rather than instantly, rather than spending money short-term now on buying lunch. If we save and go on a holiday at the end of the year, that's probably going to be better. Same as you know, exercise is a bit of short-term pain rather than you know sitting on the couch, which is more easy now. If we put off sitting on the couch now, we're, we're going to have a much more uh, better lifestyle later on. Uh, so I think it's really important. And as he says, you know, in the future, it's easy to think, yeah, I'll work out after work, I'll go to the gym. When you get to that point of after work, it's a, a lot easier to sit on the couch. And mate, another takeaway for me there is I've got to be careful when I'm shaking hands with you next time, mate. It sounds like you What's don't that? wash your hands after the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do, mate. I'll just, I'll just say some things just to go along with the interviewer. And, yeah, no, I'm a very hygienic man. Yeah. I'm not buying that for a second, mate. <laughs> mate, the next Dan after Dan Ariely was Dan, Dan Pink. Oh, yeah. Uh, who uh, the author of Free Agent Nation, A Whole New Mind, and then Drive to Sell as Human and When. Uh, and so we talked in this uh, snippet here about book drive which is probably one of the first 10 or 15 episodes we ever did uh, about motivation and why we do what we do yeah it's one of the the really the best books going out when it comes down to motivation and what makes us really uh enjoy what we're doing with our work you know it comes down to autonomy mastery and purpose and this was like a good base for a lot of other books that kind of sprung off these uh, three principles. I mean, it's a really big thing. If you can trade in your work or try and push your work in the direction of those three attributes, which autonomy, so you've got freedom about what you're going to do, mastery, that you're doing something difficult, or purpose, like you feel like you're giving something to the world, then you know it has a massive impact. Yeah, one way to, uh, in the past, that people were... M- either employers tried to motivate their employees or we tried to motivate ourselves was extrinsic motivation of the carrot and the stick. You know, we try to reward good behavior so we get more of it and we punish bad behavior so we get less of it. But Pink said that only that only works up to a certain point. And beyond that point, if the work is not just a 
heuristic, do this and you get that. Like if you need some kind of thinking, some kind of emotional element to it, some kind of uh, tough thinking and knowledge work around it, it comes down to that intrinsic motivation of autonomy, mastery and purpose. But one of the, the questions that I had for him was that, you know, purpose, he talked about in the book, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you're maybe ending world poverty or saving climate change or if you're, you know, the kid who can't go to school because he doesn't have shoes, you give him a pair of shoes, like they're massive purpose in world-changing circumstances. But I said, what about the someone who's working in a bank, for, for, for an example, that isn't changing the world in a massively positive way in that regard? How does that person still get purpose out of their job? Because mm, that's the majority of us. Yeah, it's a great question at the individual level. And, and, and I have to say, this is one area where I, I felt like in the book Drive, I didn't get it quite right. And, and I, I'm sort of changed my thinking a little bit, and maybe it'll be helpful on this. So when we think about purpose, my view now is that purpose is really two things. There are two, or at least there are two kinds of purpose. Mm-hmm. And the way that I look at it is this. Uh, it, it, this is not necessarily the best way, but it's the best way that I've come up with right now. You can think of purpose with a capital P, right? Big capital P purpose. And that is the sort of purpose that I wrote about in the book. Are you putting shoes on people who don't have shoes? Are you feeding the hungry? Are you tackling the, the climate crisis? Are you helping your country move away from dependence on fossil fuels? Um, and that's really important. And the evidence is clear that that's a big motivator. The trouble is, as the Adams are saying, is that in many jobs, it's very hard to access that. And it's very certainly very hard to access that every single day. So I think there's a second kind of purpose out there, which you can think of as small p purpose. And that's simply not am I making a difference, but am I making a contribution? If I didn't show up today, would anybody care? If I didn't show up today, would this report not go out? If I didn't show up today, would this customer be disappointed? And that ends up being actually really important as well. Um, And there's some very interesting research. It's not in the book. It, It only came out maybe two years ago. Um, that I love. Uh, it's a study of cafeterias at, at, uh, for, out of Harvard Business School, a study of cafeterias. And what they found, to just cut to the chase, is that when, you know, typically in a, in a cafeteria, the cooks are in the back. They can't see the customers. But when you rig up an iPad that allows the cooks to see the customers, the mm. quality of the food improves. Oh, awesome. Now, <clears throat> so, so this is not capital P purpose. The people at this cafeteria in Massachusetts in the eastern United States they're not starving. They're not mm. destitute. All right. But the fact that, you know, it's so interesting when the cooks say, wait a second, someone's going to eat that cheese omelet. Yeah. I'm going to do a little bit better. That is small P purpose. Am I making a contribution? And so for people who are stuck in jobs that where capital P purpose is a big reach, mm. look for those instances of small P purpose. Very good by the pink man. I hope you didn't listen to any of our songs that we used to sing. One of the pink two in the stink. That doesn't get Don't get that. No. <laughs> okay, go. But yeah, I hope he doesn't listen to any of our, our songs that we used to do. Mm-hmm. Big Pinky. Mate, that was also the To Sell His Human episode where the neighbor um, didn't like uh, our recording. Mm. That's Ooh. worth going back to for a laugh as well. Yeah, to we, Sell His Human. Maybe we'll do that a bit later in the show. <laughs> Next up, we got Big Dan Heath, who is the author with along with his brother, his twin, of heaps of books. I don't books. think they're twins. Well, just, <laughs> they're not, they sound they're like twins. twins. They look very, very different. Big Dan and Big Chip. Yeah. Oh, they're pretty much the same person. Though, yeah. They're, they're both brothers, authors. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they su- <laughs> they wrote, I was about to say, they sung. 
<laughs> we sung, but they they wrote made the stick switch decisive the power of moments. They're really really good authors. They put um, complex information in very easy to digest uh, kind of uh, metaphors and, and examples. Yeah, nice and simple. Always like switch was three steps. Power of moments was four different things. Mate, this is one of my more enjoyable interviews. More from the sense that uh, Dan Heath specifically requested to listen to the book episode beforehand he made references to that episode um so that he wasn't like repeating the same info and the biggest one was um at the start we had a conversation with him and he said he really enjoyed the song Mm. that we sung the power of moments he said he was going to record it play it to himself every morning before he gets in the shower just as a bit of motivation i don't know how serious he was but it was a pretty actually it was one of our better songs was that right um the power of moments yeah it's worth going back to listen to if you if you haven't heard that one but here's big dan heath you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is is really one of the simplest, which is um, the idea of a gratitude visit. Mm-hmm. And this is a, in the discipline of positive psychology, where psychologists are studying what are things that make us happier. Uh, this is probably what would be considered a greatest hit. Yeah. Um, and so, so the, the instructions are very simple. You just think of someone who's made a difference in your life. And you write them a little letter that talks about what they did for you and why it was so important. And then here's the important part. You, you actually deliver it face to face. And so uh, if you can physically get in the same room with them, that is that is plan A, B and C. If that's utterly impossible because you're across the world, you know, do it on Skype or somewhere where you can see each other on video. But the uh, the research is is just astonishing. What they find is that Uh, people who deliver a gratitude visit like that are happier for a full month afterwards. Mm. A month. I mean, there there are a lot of pleasures in this world uh, that can spike your happiness level for minutes or hours. There are very, very few that last a month. Mm. And and that's leaving aside, by the way, how the people you delivered the gratitude letter to feel. I mean, imagine how good (laughs) that must feel to have someone, you know, come out of their way to tell you how important you've been to them. Mm. So um, on on a personal basis, I think that's something anybody listening to this can do in the next week um, to to make a a big impact in your own life and someone else's. Yeah, I feel like the gratitude visit falls in that category of something that's extremely effective and gives you a lot, but at the same time is really, really uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable, man. But it adds so much to you and the person you're just saying thank you to uh, you know, rather than just being really flippant and doing it in, uh, you know, like a the text message or at a birthday, you just do it out of the blue. Go out to them, give them a note to their face, let them know how what you are grateful for specifically, and it yeah it has a massive impact. Yeah, it does, mate. That book, The Power of Moments. Uh, one of the the big things I really liked in there was he talked about the idea of elevate, uh, which is that saying that you know, say if you've got like a your throughout the day you're going to have few pretty flat sometimes a little bit up sometimes a little bit down sometimes a big drop off sometimes a big peak he says that we need to firstly fill those massive pits in terms of anything that's really 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 bad we try to make that as uh, bring that back to a normal sort of level but then if there's little potholes along the way he says just ignore those and focus on making the peaks as high as possible so i think that's where the the gratitude visit ties into that's a phenomenal peak, man. If you were to to receive one of those bad boys, and also as you said, for you giving it selfishly as well, um, is going to make you feel really good as well. The next interview we're um, going to play now is Big Annie Duke. So she's a poker superstar. I highly recommend going and checking her out on YouTube if you're into poker. Um, but 
in her book, Thinking in Bets, I think poker is really an amazing analogy for what life is. You know, and, and a different game of poker that a lot of people see life as in the metaphor that they use is chess. And it's not really like chess because because in chess, there's always a better move there that, that is uh, can be acquired by logic to get you to finally win the game. Whereas poker, on the other hand, it's a game of incomplete information. It means a novice with a shit hand can end up winning. So it's a game of probabilities. And what you do in poker is you put out minimum bets to get some more information and then eventually these minimum bets and you play to you know the expected value of what an outcome might be and your bet needs to be proportional to how much expected value you get from it uh, to eventually win the game. So I think it's an incredible metaphor for um, how to you know how to play the game of life. Yeah, I like that a lot, man. And what she talks about a lot as well is a lot of these cognitive biases that impact upon our decision-making as to why we might uh, make the wrong decision, but also how we evaluate the decisions we have made. So things like hindsight bias and resulting where, you know, if something works out, we say, yeah, that was a good decision. And if something doesn't work, we say that was a bad decision. But she said that's not necessarily true. You need to differentiate the result with the decision. Sometimes you can make a bad decision and get lucky or you can make a good decision and it doesn't quite work out. So that's what she talks about here, that we need to separate the result from the decision and focus on making the best decisions we possibly can. Okay, so if we think about it, whenever we make a decision, there's a set of possible outcomes that could happen. Some good, some bad, some mediocre, but there's a, there's a lot of different ways it could go. So if, I'm, if I go out and I'm, I'm, I'm driving through an intersection, you know, I could get through safely, I could get a ticket, I could get into an accident, I could get into a near accident, um, you know, variety of things could could happen. But we act like, you know, once we know the outcome that we know exactly what happened, right? So so we don't really understand the uh, very well the uncertainty in the way that things turn out that, you know, just because you make great decisions doesn't mean that you have great results, at least not on one try. You know, just because you make bad decisions doesn't mean you have bad results. Likewise, so we don't we don't really understand the uncertainty there. But the other thing that we really aren't very good at is understanding the uncertainty in our own beliefs. Mm-hmm. If I give you enough time, I can get there. So if I say to you, can you see, think of something that you believed for certain when you were 15 that you now believe was just, you know, hooey, you know, and you're like, sure, yes, everything I believed when I was 15 yeah. was very, right. <laughs> but at the time, you, right, it's, yeah. So, so. Well, now that I want to hear more. About <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll but, stay away um, from yeah, conspiracy so, theories today <laughs> for yeah. another day. <laughs> so, so that's so like so. If I give you a lot of time, like if I give you a lot of years in between, you'll like recognize. Oh yeah, I have some beliefs that I thought that were really certain, but you know maybe I was actually a little bit wrong about them. And in the history of humans, we can see this. Like we used to think that the sun revolves around the earth. Mm-hmm. for example. So there's a lot of uncertainty in our beliefs. And generally, our beliefs shouldn't actually sit like in the right or wrong category. They should sit in between in the in-progress mm-hmm. category. I think that's super important to realize that either way, you're never going to be 100% certain that this is definitely correct or I'm 100% certain that this is definitely incorrect. We're always somewhere between 0% and 100%. So you need to realize that Changing your mind doesn't mean shifting from 100% to 0%. It might mean shifting from 70% sure to 40% sure. Mm. Yeah, man, we almost fell down the uh, conspiracy rabbit hole there. <laughs> Quite recently, you or a few months ago, you went down the uh, the Alex Jones rabbit hole. So where oh, yeah. are you in the rabbit hole at the moment? Uh, I haven't listened to Alex Jones since um, 
for for a fair while, but mate, it's a it's worth having a listen What's to. your limit of, of rabbit hole in terms of conspiracy <laughs> shit you believe? Mate, apparently the Chinese... <laughs> Here we go. Here we go, mate. Go on. What are the Chinese doing? Mate, well, the, the second episode that Alex Jones did with Joe Rogan a couple of months ago is worth a listen to, man. It was like four and almost five hours. It was over four and a half hours, I think. And fuck, man, he dropped some serious bombs in that. Mm. Mate, they're killing babies and harvesting their organs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you all you believe everything that comes out of Jonesy's mouth, including the, the, the. I think for most people in the world, we're between zero percent and hundred percent. For Alex Jones, he's hundred percent sure of everything, and mm. he's right. Yeah, Jesus, <laughs> it's pretty not far quite, down the quite. rabbit hole, mate. Not quite. <laughs> let's move on. From, let's get out of this hole. Uh, next up, we got big Kevin Kelly. Man, he's he's awesome. He was uh, someone who, before we started, would have loved to the opportunity to speak to Kev, the real futurist. Mm kind of writer all about the new technologies that are really going to shape the world which i think is the title of his book the the inevitable yeah the technological forces, forces that are going to shape our future i think you're pretty close there man yeah mate so tim ferris talks about kevin kelly a lot he calls him the most interesting man alive he was one of, mate i thought vr was pretty new like in the last couple of years kevin kelly was playing on vr in the 80s mm. so mate he's, he's um both uh extremely early in terms of internet technology in the early days, but also now looking ahead, made his book inevitable really uh, open our eyes to what's to come. The thing I want to stress is that there's, this is true of both virtual reality and artificial intelligence and some of these other ones coming along, is that there are no experts compared to where we'll be in 30 years. And that you'll learn more by buying some gear and fooling around with it and trying to make something in it than you will ever learn by reading anything about it or going to school. And if you pursue that, if you stuck with that for a year, you you would become the world's expert on it. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Okay. And uh, like in AI right now, you can buy right this minute. You can log on to you know Google TensorFlow and you can purchase some AI. You can go to Microsoft and you on Azure and you can buy some AI and you can start messing around with it and if you if you do that it's very cheap if you do that and pursue it within a year you would be one of the world's experts on using this stuff um, and you might even get some ideas messing around with, with stuff that you could do and by the way 99% um, of those ideas will fail to become a business mm -hmm. that's just the nature of it So so you have to accept that there's that this area, because it's so unproven, because it's marginal, because it's uh, uh, at the, uh, in the startup zone, it's the death zone. Mm -hmm. That's why the big companies mm -hmm. aren't there. It's because it's very hard on average to make money here. That's why the people who have very little to lose and can have more time than money can make an advantage that's why that's where all the startup and innovation is going to come from because you can't really buy innovation mm -hmm. i mean if you if, if innovation was something you could buy all the big companies with lots of money would buy it apple mm -hmm. would just billions of dollars it would just buy it you can't really buy it you have to earn it and grow it you you, you, you it has to come from something that money can't buy which is tons of failures mm -hmm. companies are allergic to losing money on failures they can't afford that but young people and people starting off can afford to fail because they don't have much to lose 
I really like that idea of tinkering. Uh, w- when it comes to technology and disruption, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, man, in, it, in the next few decades. And because there's such disruptive technologies, universities aren't there and ready to educate you. So if you want to actually lead the pack in some of these areas, the only way to lead the pack is to just buy some of it, just tinker around with it, play around on weekends. And who knows, eventually, just by playing around with it, you might actually be one of the so-called experts, uh, ironically, the one teaching it in the universities. Mm. Man, I like that he says you can't buy innovation. It only comes from a lot of failures. And that, mm. that idea of tinkering, getting out there, playing around, you know, one thing is to read about it, think about it, talk about it, watch videos about it, learn to take courses about it. But really, the real learning comes from actually just getting out there and doing it, getting your hands dirty, playing around with it. Mate, you threw me under the bus with Alex Jones, so I'll... I'll, I'll throw <laughs> you under go. the bus with tinkering, mate. You can't throw me under tinkering. the bus here. Mate, so after you read Black Swan, I reckon the word serendipity came up in eight of the next 10 episodes. I've got a feeling <laughs> if everyone listening, Adam Jones just read uh, Anti-Fragile, I reckon eight of the next 10 episodes, tinkering will come up. I'm obsessed keep, with tinkering. Keep your, keep your ears out. Well, the opposite of tinkering is just <laughs> staying put, right? And there's only downside to staying put. Mate, I, do, I don't disagree with if the idea you of tinker, tinker. you've got an option. <laughs> so if you tinker, you can actually go back to where you were previously or upgrade to the new thing you tinkered to. That's it, yeah. There's I an like analogy uh, Nicholas Taleb Nassim <laughs> doesn't use in the book, but I just made up um, in my own brain as I was trying to get to sleep the other night. But if you're a tinkerer, if you think of the analogy of monkeys swinging from vine to vine and you only... Uh, the amount you tinker are the more vines that present themselves. So you can grab a tinker on the low dip of the vine or the up dip of the vine. So if you tinker at the right thing, you can keep tinkering upwards, upwards and upwards on these vines as opposed to just staying on the same vine in the same position. Do I need us to work on that metaphor? Yeah, sorry. I was with you at the start and then I lost you. (laughs) We've got a couple of weeks before we do anti-fragile. So brush up on on that one. The the next person we uh, spoke to was Peter Singer, who is uh, the most influential living philosopher, wrote, uh, had a decades-long career where uh, books like Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics, The Life You Can Save, The Most Good You Can Do. So it, we talked about the idea of utilitarian philosophy and the idea of that all of us are not probably doing the most good that we can do. We can do things better. We're pro- we're, most of us aren't doing too bad. But we could definitely do with a small, with a few small tinkerings, with a few yes, small tweaks. Absolutely, we can probably do do a little bit better. Yeah, his whole style of writing and, and his whole jam can be really summed up by this quote he pulls out at the end of his book. Uh, I guess basically, one wants to feel that one's life is accounted to more than just consuming products and generating garbage. I think that one likes to look back and say that. One's done the best one can do to make this a better place for others. What greater motivation is there than doing what you can to reduce pain and suffering in the world? Which again, I, th- I think it's a really big deal, man. If you get to the end and you look back and you know you've done net positive contribution, then you know, you've know you probably job done. The average person might be selfish or, or whatever. So how does someone go about actually make that switch to become selfless and all of a sudden start looking at effective altruism and actually trying to make a net positive impact in the world. What's the switch there? I don't know if this is a question on, in the philosophy area as well. but Oh, it's an area of philosophy that overlaps with psychology, I guess. Um, and let me just say one thing. It's not a question of becoming selfless, um, as I said before. Um, there are very few saints who are completely selfless. Yeah. And uh, I don't think... 
there's much point in trying to get people to be like that. I think the point is to get people to be open to thinking more about others. Um, you know, they're still going to think more about themselves than about strangers and more about their own children than about the children of strangers. Um, but uh, there is plenty of room, especially people who live in affluent societies and don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. There's plenty of room to do good things for others. Mm. Uh, and, and this is where the psychology research comes in. There's lots of evidence that actually you will find that fulfilling, that you'll enjoy your life more if you're open to helping others, um, that it gives you purposes which go beyond yourself and purposes which actually don't become sort of, you know, there's a thing called the hedonic treadmill that if you try and say, oh, well, I want to have more consumer goods, I want to drive a better car, I want to, uh, you know, have a bigger house, um, that these things make you happy for a short while, but mm. after a while that disappears. Whereas um, the rewards of, of helping others and knowing that you're living in accordance with your values seem to be lasting ones. Yeah, that hedonic treadmill is yeah, it's a great one to, to jump off, I think. Yeah, that idea that, uh, you know, we could be doing a lot more. So, you know, if we're buying our next car rather than buying the $80,000 car to make ourselves feel good, if we buy the $30,000 car and use that $50,000 to do some something really effective for people far less fortunate is going to be uh, a way, way, way different uh, net positive effect on the world. So, And it's just, you know, that's a, that's a massive example. But it's even the, the small things he talks about, you know, that it's a couple of bucks a day that could be better directed. Mm. Mate, at the end of the life, you can save. He's got a rolling pay scale thing percentage. Yeah. Do you do it? Uh, no, do you? Uh, <laughs> we both said we would mate i'm gonna do it yeah. can you tell can you make me do it yeah. and embarrass me if i don't yeah there's a couple of times that we've said that we would and we still haven't i think someone emailed us and we kind of somehow justified it that we did yeah so we, oh that was one of the questions in the q a last time oh. wasn't it i remember you yeah you justified we just it. we rationalized it but it was a bit of yeah. a bullshit <laughs> rationalization i think mate six months on and nothing's changed so we need to lift on that yeah fuck we're on the hedonic treadmill. Yeah. You got a hedonic adaptation. Mm. And um, when I got the pay bump, I got hedonic overexceedance. <laughs> <laughs> just didn't even keep up, just went beyond. Went beyond. <laughs> That's not good, mate. That's not good. Ran off the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> mate, the next uh, person we spoke to, and this is the last one we've got from our, our season two batch, is Tom Peters. And so he's one of the original management gurus in the 1980s. He wrote the book In Search of Excellence, which is like, one of the first real mainstream business books that really sort of opened the doors for all the books that we've done on the on the podcast really that took it outside of the academic papers and the professional journals and made it something more accessible to the, the mainstream. And I just realized, Matt, I've set you up here because this snippet that we're about to talk about is is all about tinkering. Ooh. One, one thing I, I really liked uh, when you talk about innovation, whoever tries the most stuff wins, whoever screws up the most stuff wins. So I think it's applicable to companies big and and small and individuals as well i completely agree i mean i i call it i i will never be able to get the letters down <laughs> whoever tries the most stuff and screws the most stuff up the fastest wins and i require guys like you and me to remember the letters like wttmsaf2d uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think you do okay <laughs> hey why not uh, the, you know you know what i said about it in the book and i've said it before is I have a pretty good science-based training, 
for every hypothesis, there is an equal and opposite hypothesis with one exception, and this is it. Whoever tries the most stuff wins. And the problem with it is the same problem that exists, and you know we've been talking about it now for several minutes, is to have an organization that lives, whoever tries the most stuff wins, duh, you have to have a culture that honors playfulness. Mm -hmm. Michael Schrag, who's an MIT Media Lab professor, actually wrote an entire book a few years ago that was called Serious Play. And playfulness doesn't mean sloppy. It doesn't mean it, it means you just get off on trying something. Uh, and, and, and it becomes, as I said, an, an entire culture of the organization. And it's also a problem. And I think it's the same problem. It always find me a school system anywhere in the world where kids are not primarily punished for screw ups. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this this terrific one liner in the book that comes from a very successful Sydney, Australia uh, businessman. And he says the six most important words in my bit behind my business success are reward, excellent failures, punish mediocre successes. It's interesting that Michael Bloomberg said the same thing at one point. He said, if somebody really makes an exciting screw up from which we learn something, promote them. The best failure mm. gets promoted at some level. And Bezos said the same thing. Bezos said, if you want to survive in today's world, right near the center of things is celebrating failures. And again, you know, there's a, there's a way to, to do dopey stuff, which, you know, you get questions like this. I get questions. Well, you don't want a sloppy person. You don't want to reward somebody who comes to work late. No, you know what an excellent failure is. And I know what an excellent failure, somebody who puts their heart and their soul into something. And this isn't quite the right moment and it doesn't work, but oh my God, we learn a million things. Mm, yeah. Whoever tries the most stuff wins. I could just picture a monkey. <laughs> Swinging off vines, getting to the top of the tree before all the other monkeys because there's more vines coming because he tries swinging off more vines than the rest. <laughs> that was not bad, actually. Yeah, I told you, man. It's, <laughs> it's biblical, that metaphor, that analogy. Not bad, man. Not bad. Mate, so that was the end of our, our season two uh, interviews. And then we move on to the, the third and, and final batch here, which is our season three interviews. I mean, I reckon season three was a, another real uptick for us in terms of the way we did the podcast and that at the very start we started off with literally hit record talked 20 minutes of crap and then hit stop and put it straight up and then as we evolved maybe we'd edit out some of the some of the little fumbles and stuff ups and then the next iteration we probably took a few more notes and we were a bit more planned and by this stage now season three we we're both working off the same notes we both sort of had the same run sheet we knew where the direction was going we knew what we were talking about and we'd also uh, not only just plan the episode based, you know, chapter by chapter, page by page, but we'd add our bit of our own little salt and pepper in terms of engineering the episode. So rather than, you know, taking them lesson by lesson, we thought, what's the best way to tell this story as an episode? So I think this is a real uptick here as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a bit of a cost in terms of what we narrated out from the... <laughs> yeah, a little bit. A little bit of our own narration coming in, but we, yeah, I think we really added... Uh, added to the episode in, in most cases. Um, one of the first interviews we did for season three was Rachel Botsman. So she's an extremely, extremely classy person, mm. top 50 thinkers of the world, massive TED Talk, 
absolutely elegant lady who we actually invited to do the interview at Ross House, yeah. <laughs> which is one of those dingy, <laughs> gross little old kind of places you could have in Melbourne. Yeah. But uh, I think we got it for if, 50 bucks or probably something. Probably less, I reckon. Probably less, the future will probably book a nicer place to record these in-person interviews in, in Melbourne. But at this Ross House, if it's, uh, it's, it's not bad for certain occasions, but for this occasion... Um, the carpet's probably 40 years old, a few holes in the walls, a few lights that aren't quite working. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often pretty loud. We probably should have... Um, mate, Upgrade. I don't know. I'm surprised she didn't just walk in and walk straight back yeah, out. Just look, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just looked down the dingy old corridor <laughs> with us two dingy... <laughs> some, somewhat dingy yeah. and just turned her back and just got straight out. But thanks, Rach. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was a good chat. The, her most recent book is called Who Can You Trust? And uh, in this snippet, we talked about uh, both you and I love the show Black Mirror. Man, it's actually coming again. There's a new episode oh, in about great. two weeks. Oh, really? Fantastic. Um, start of June, I think. Um, so we talked about this. There's this one episode, which is a bit of a dystopian view of, you know, at the moment, you know, we rate our Uber driver. We rate the hotel we stay at. But this is saying that everybody rates everybody for every interaction. The person you buy a coffee from gives you a rating as to how you were that when you're... Um, Walking down the street, if you run into someone, they'll give you a bad rating because you're a douchebag. So all these ratings, and you've got this constant, you know, personal rating, and you know, different clumps of ratings all stick together. And then you know, certain ratings can't go on, can't fly. Certain ratings can only buy certain houses. And we thought, oh, this is just, you know, it's Black Mirror. It's a, obviously an extrapolation of the worst possible outcome. But apparently, it's it's uh, it's happening in the world. I mean, this is George Orwell flipping in his grave. Mm. If he so. In 2014, the Chinese government um, came out with this policy statement saying that uh, most half the country don't have traditional credit scores mm-hmm. and there's really high instances of fraud and counterfeit goods and it's a low-trust society beyond your extended circle. So how can we fix that? Well, by 2020, every Chinese citizen will have a mandatory trust score wow. and they will have a rating up to 950 and but unlike your traditional credit score Mm. um it will be influenced on different dimensions so one will be whether you pay your bills on time um kind of traditional credit Mm -hmm. indicators the second will be what you actually buy so they formed all these partnerships and then deemed certain things like nappies and work shoes good uh, purchases because they show you're responsible and then like video games lazy purchases wow. so your score goes up and down that's unbelievable then, <laughs> yeah that's and then what you say online and who yeah. your friends are could have influenced wow. your score oh, wow. but <laughs> what becomes weirder is if we're now connected somewhere in the online world mm. and i said something about tiananmen square my score down, but your score would also oh. go down. Oh no! <laughs> and you That's can see well. who's bringing yeah. your score down, mm. so you could unfriend me. Yeah, and then you could also wow. see who was positively influencing your score. So you'd want to spend more time with that person. So <sighs> it's really they pulled everyone in by offering all these incentives, these rewards, and then they announced, just like in that episode of Black Mirror, that more than four and a half million Chinese can't get on airplanes because their trust score is too low and their children can't go to certain schools and you can't apply for certain jobs. So Mm. that's really gamified obedience. Mm. But the thing I find really fascinating about this was when I went to China, when I spoke to Chinese people, in China this is seen as a good thing because 
they've always had a system of people monitoring them and they'll describe this as more transparent. Mm. And then they'll also say, you think you're so different in the West, but all this is happening. You live in a culture of surveillance. You mm. just have no idea what's being watched and you have no control over it. I don't know it. what your score is. Uh. You know what your score is. <laughs> I just saw you just shuffle your pants a little bit there, mate. When you heard uh, when you heard surveillance in the West, hey, we've been you're watched. Alex. <laughs> Matt, this this episode might be taken down. We've already talked about Alex Jones a lot, and now we've just hung shit on China. So, mate, we <laughs> mate, you to climb yourself we get out knocked of that off. hole before it's too late. <laughs> mate, you're not getting knocked off. <laughs> We're just just two blokes just recording a podcast. We're not getting knocked I off. Hope mate. So, mate. I hope so, mate. I hope so. The next next up, we got Robert Cialdini who I'd say is one of the most respected authors amongst authors. Mm. So it was someone who we really got a lot out of speaking to, but it also in terms of leverage, because just as a side note, how we get more and more authors is you get one person, you leverage that name to get more, and you leverage that name to get more. And over time, you get that a little bit easier and easier. So Cialdini, man, is a great name to leverage to other people. Yeah, as we said, like getting Seth Godin, uh, was really a, a turning point in terms of getting more and more and more um, better and better guests. And then Cialdini, as you say, it's probably not the someone that everybody in the general public knows, but the authors who are writing these types of books definitely know who he is because uh, his uh, phenomenal book from 1984, Influence, and then uh, his more recent book from 2016, Persuasion. Mate, they're just phenomenal, man. He's, the, he's a marketing guru uh, and just an all-round legend. Mate, this is a real Hail Mary to get this one. Um, a bit of behind the scenes was that we, over the last probably 12 to 18 months before this, we'd sent a few emails, filled out the online form. Uh, every now and then we'd try a different approach. We'd tinker around, try to find the right approach. Mm. Uh, and eventually, mate, I just went the Hail Mary phone call to his office, got through the gatekeeper to the other gatekeeper, used some of the weapons of influence on her. Did you? And then um, eventually, after a bit of a chat on the phone, we were able to get through and spoke to the, spoke to the great man. And what I'm doing now is looking at a particular problem that has to do with the, the principle of social proof, the idea that if a lot of other people are doing something, it's likely to be the right thing to do. So a communicator should always tell people, uh, you know, what what is the most popular of their items or that they have uh, the largest selling uh, uh product or service in the industry, this kind of thing. But the question is, what if you don't have the largest selling? What if you're uh, a new startup? What if uh, you're at the beginning and um, that isn't the case yet? Your major rival is that. Does that mean you can't use social proof? Well, most of the time, I would have to say, yes, use one of the other six principles then. Use authority or use scarcity, something like that. But we've recently found that actually you can use social proof even if you are in the minority of, uh, uh, of uh, companies or uh, maybe a, a startup by telling people that there is a trend in your direction. So, for example, that five years ago, we were uh, only we had only. Uh, 10% of the market share. Three years ago, we had 15. This year, we have 30, right? That's 
dramatically more successful than just telling people we have 30% of the market share. Uh, if oh, you nice. tell them we have 30%, they can do the logic, the, the math and say, <laughs> well, then there's 70% of people who don't like it. Yeah. Right? But if you show them a trend to 30, now they jump on board. Yeah, some good stuff. It is really hard when you're starting something to have social proof. Because mm. It's that catch-22, how can you have social proof if no one's tried it? So mm. uh, that's a really good silver bullet. Mm. Big shell Danny. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I think he said that he's actually re sort of redoing his first book, Influence, in the next couple of years. So maybe maybe keep an eye out for round two with with Big Bad Cialdini. I don't know if it'll be a good idea or not because it was so good the first one. It's like yeah. it's like watching the the remake of The Lion King. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really nervous watching it, so I might be a bit nervous yeah. reading this one as well. That's true, that's true. See how we go. Next up... Anyway, he'll, he'll deliver the goods. Yeah. He'll deliver the goods. We'll see. Next up, we've got, <laughs> we got uh, Mia Friedman, who's a superstar, great person, runs the whole Mum Mia empire, I would say. Huge in podcasting in Australia. Probably probably the biggest in yeah, podcasting. The, yeah, the biggest. By daylight. Net, yeah. So, they, uh, she was originally... She had an awesome um, corporate career in journalism, magazines, and then TV... And then uh, coming, uh, when she came to the end of her TV career and she sort of went out on her own, started a little blog on the side, tinkered around with it, mm-hmm. tried a few different things, tried to swing up that vine to the top of the monkey pile. and uh, <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and she uh, has turned that into mate, a massive international media empire in terms of online and in terms of, as you say, now the Australia's biggest podcast network with 100 plus staff. Uh, and mate, she's got one of her, I think they've got about 22, 23 podcasts. Um, one of the podcasts is called Lady Startup, which she um, started and then handed over the reins to someone else. Mate, they're our competition for tomorrow night's uh, 2019 Australian Podcast Awards. I'd say they'd be favourites. They'd be a strong favourite for the for the business marketing category. I'd Ooh. say we're a pretty decent favourite for, for second spot. Second spot, yeah. We'll see how we go. And so they say that they want to have something that's theirs. And even if it is a side hustle, even if it doesn't make any money or if it makes a minimal amount of money or even if it's just, you know, spare change money, it's theirs. The satisfaction that comes from work should never be Mm. underestimated because we don't just work for money. We also work for meaning. Definitely. I think one thing that holds people back from starting businesses, I don't know if it's a more or less for women um, maybe you can tell us but I think just the idea of like it has to be I've got this big idea and I have to build this perfect thing whether it's I want to be yeah. on all the supermarket shelves or I, I want to have the perfect um, crisp video I can't have just a cheap you know iPhone selfie version of my video yep. how can we counteract that and what's this because it sounds like like you started you know this whatever you did it started as a small idea not the big massive worldwide thing it started no. with uh, you were saying how you started with just recording off your iphone yeah and your podcast oh god yes we didn't have equipment we didn't then we were like we're in and we didn't have a studio it was so i think that you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of mm. done mm. Um, and I think that that's really true. I'm really good at not being perfect because another thing that people talk about perfectionism that's often just a way of being scared it's just a form of fear saying I can't do it unless it's perfect or you're just too scared to do it. Like Mm. it's better to Mm. do something not perfectly than nothing and have it perfect in your brain. Yeah, that's amazing, man, that uh, hearing from the best podcaster in Australia, starting from the iPhone and then tinkering (laughs) all the way to the best network in Australia. It's crazy, right? Yeah. And 
if anyone's sitting there like right now thinking about doing a podcast and uh, procrastinating over it, you know, you just heard it then. You can just do it on your iPhone right now in the next hour, really, mm. and just upload it and then just go from there. I mean, for us, we're in the similar kind of camp. As we said at the start of this episode, right, we we just hit record uh, and it was very shit. And mm, then just over was. time, just gradually just got a little bit better every time. Yeah, there's no doubt about it that I, I do think that idea of perfectionism is something you need to let go and that if you want to have the the perfect Instagram feed of crisp with a graphic designer and or you know if it's a podcast you need to have the best equipment and you can't say any ums or you can't have any stuff ups then you're probably never going to start so as as Mia Friedman was saying there you really need to let that go and just start mm. it's that uh I'm happy to drop the analogy again of the the arena like perfectionism you can't really hop into the arena if you got all the big armor on and you you're slugging around the huge Armor. You need to take the actual armor off to get into the, the arena and actually be vulnerable to actually share what you want to share with the world, whatever that is. And uh, part of the package deal, as we've said recently, is uh, is getting slammed mm. down in the arena. So when you share your stuff at the start, you are vulnerable and someone might slap you up, but it's just all part of the deal. Matt, when you said I'm going to share the analogy again, I thought you were going to say the fucking monkey thing again. But I'm glad it was a different analogy. <laughs> Mate, we've been, um, we've been thinking about the idea we're going to write for our book when we write. And I think we yeah. just... The monkey the climbs the tree or something. The monkey swings up the tree. I think it's a short chapter, mate. <laughs> it's a full book in it. It's a full book in it. Mate, the uh, next one we've got uh, here is is the legendary Dr. Carl. And uh, I think uh, he's the only one we've doubled up yeah. 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 So we've done two episodes with Seth, but someone said <laughs> push him back. Yeah, that was uh, that was an error. But yeah, so Dr. Carl, we did twice, uh, once about eighteen months ago, and then more recently about six months ago. Mate, we've um, aside from all the things we learnt in the convos, and I, a lot of people have reached out saying it was uh, he's one of their new favourite people. That uh, mate, firstly, he's a great dishwasher stacker. Uh, loves to maximise the the volume of getting the most plates and cups in for one wash. Uh, secondly, mate, he takes a lot of care for his mm, iPad screens. He does. Which is something he violated. And then uh, the second time, mate, he really values academic integrity, <laughs> really looks after exam papers, which is another thing he fucked up as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, tell us those two stories. Oh, zero from three. <laughs> well, the exam paper one, he really stressed. He said, there's exam papers in this room, so make sure the door's closed. Make sure they're fully closed the whole time. And then we did the interview in the exam paper room. And then we went, in, we strolled into his office. I was the it was last just one. Just across the hall, man. Just across like three the hall, man. Away. Yeah, and then um, door open. <laughs> <laughs> he lost his shit, <laughs> mate. There was a guy loitering around, just waiting for he an was opportunity. In there for a bit. Yeah. yeah, phenomenal. And I think we really need it now because I saw you on Twitter posted recently about the Carmichael coal mine in Adani, which is I think it's going to be, you know, seventy-five million tons of coal every year. It's going to oh be about God. one to one and a half percent of the world emissions. Oh God! And that's opening in twenty twenty with a supposedly sixty-year design life of, of coal so and you know i've got no idea how um you know projects like this start coming through when you know renewables are the obvious choice in 2020 well the bottom line is global warming is real and it's getting really bad already and it's just going to get worse and we have to not go down the same pathway but in fact reverse stop putting carbon dioxide and start sucking out of the atmosphere mm-hmm. and so the adani coal mine has what's been technically called a royalty holiday. What that me- means is that they don't have to pay for the ro- royalties on the coal they take out. Mm. Well, I'd 
No, I, I don't want a tax holiday. I like paying yep. tax. But I wouldn't mind a coffee holiday where, and I wouldn't mind a movie holiday where whenever I get a coffee or a movie, that's free. I wouldn't mind a car holiday where someone gives <laughs> me a free Tesla. And um, I wouldn't mind a magazine holiday where people give me free magazines. I wouldn't mind if people give me everything for free. Um, and yet, for one re- mm. not only are we giving them a tax-free, a tax holiday on royalties, we're also putting in a billion-dollar coal mine, a billion-dollar railway line, and if we put that billion dollars into directly health, education, welfare, or even on protecting the Great Barrier Reef, mm. we'd get more jobs. Mm. They're saying in the press releases, I get 10,000 jobs in court. They said 1,000 jobs. And when you, <laughs> when, when you compare that... Like, like there's a windmill factory starting up in South Australia. By itself, 600 jobs. Mm. Okay, count the number of people who've been booted off the land by the Adani coal mine mm. and you're getting close, and the jobs that are lost there, you're getting already close to the 1,000 mm. jobs that they'll create. It's the craziest thing that seems to... You've got to take it to the high level, and the high level is that global warming is real, mm. and this can't go ahead because it'll make global warming worse. Yeah. The crookedness along the way... well. That's why you should become a politician. Yeah. That Follow the example of Barnaby Joyce. You don't have dual citizenship, do you? I do. Oh, you're out, mate. Yeah, well, no, I'm good. well it's the other Adam. It's on me. <laughs> it's the handsome Adam. Come on, mate. <laughs> well, it's too funny. I had to leave that handsome Adam gag in the mm. end, just for my own uh, ego and self-esteem. Yep. It's the only time you'll ever be hearing it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> mate, there was uh, actually in the Dan Ariely episode also, he, he said that you were the, the better Adam. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Well, Dan's a and, uh, much well, more I, educated man, actually, so Dan knows. <laughs> mate, I said you were the better Adam and I buy a bit and he said only buy a bit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right, Danny. But yeah, so that was, uh, that was a bit about a, a Danny. That was 18 months ago when we spoke about that. Mm. So The Australian election is tomorrow and it's a, it's a very hot topic. A very moment. hot topic. I think it's... Uh, Looks like it might be going ahead with with mm-hmm. a much reduced scope than what was uh, what we were speaking about with Dr. Carl. Hopefully, no scope. Mate, Dr. Carl hasn't agreed to this, but we've just decided it's it's the annual pilgrimage to go see Dr. Carl um, at you know November December each year. So, uh, if you've got any questions for Big Bad Dr. Carl, let us know for the next time we we speak to him because he's a he's a bloody legend. Mm, sooner or later, he's going to drop us because of me. <laughs> <laughs> so get fed up. Yeah, enjoy it while we can. Next up, we got Cal Newport. He's a bad man, bad bad boy, but he's good. Is he? I don't know. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <I don't> th- <laughs> just came out. <laughs> but he's good, mate. So he's the author of the book uh, "So Good They Can't Ignore You," which was uh, all about, I guess, your your approach to work rather than following your passion, getting good first and foremost. And then his next book was "Deep Work," which is all about focusing and then how to actually get good. And then his most recent book went, I guess, even more narrow again into digital minimalism. So specifically how we can wean ourselves off this technology addiction and being constantly connected that we've all sort of unintentionally wandered into and we're, we're sort of trapped. The books are beautifully linked, like so good they can't ignore you. The focus is on this idea of building career capital and with a career capital, you can actually trade that in for the things that make give you like a really enjoyable career. And the best way to build career capital is to actually perform deep work because high-quality work is a function of intensity of focus and time spent. So if you can bump up that intensity of focus, you're going to be giving out higher-quality work. And then that kind of links into digital minimalism as uh, that digital minimalism will always be connected to 
your phone in some way kind of detracts from your intensity of focus? Well, so deep work is my term for the activity where you're focused without distraction on a cognitively demanding task, right? So it's when you're locked in. You're really concentrating hard. You're really thinking hard. So maybe you're trying to produce something really hard, like a piece of writing, or you're trying to learn something really hard that requires intense, unbroken conversation. And my argument is that as our economy in general shifts worldwide, and especially in in sort of uh, Western countries towards knowledge work, the ability to do deep work is becoming more and more important. Just like if you lived back in ancient Sparta, your physical fitness would be really important, right? We'd say, yeah, it really matters. Like you really need to be in good shape because our whole culture is increasingly built around, you know, let's say uh, physical warfare. Well, well, right now our, our culture is increasingly built around doing cognitive work, you know, using your brain to create more value out of information. And deep work is the tier one activity if you want to be good at this. And so what's interesting, I mean, it, the idea came out of in part so good because people are saying, well, what should I do to, to get better at things? And basically the answer was get much more comfortable with concentrating because if you can concentrate intensely, you can pick up new skills really fast. But as I got more into the implications of that reality, you know, what I noticed is that, okay, not only is this becoming more valuable, not just for loving your career, but just in general for succeeding, we're getting worse at it. And this is because of whatever technical, unintentional technological consequences of things like email and Slack and social media and smartphones that, that we have a culture right now, a technological culture that uh, partially by design and partially accidentally is radically reducing our ability to concentrate, radically reducing our ability to deep work. So now we have a classic sort of economic supply and demand type situation where this skill, the ability to concentrate is becoming more uh, in demand at the same time that its supply is going down. And Economics 101 then says, okay, then the price on this thing is going to be very high. And I think that's what's happening now, that if you're one of the few individuals or organizations who systematically cultivates and protects your ability to concentrate intensely, you get this disproportionate competitive advantage in the marketplace. That's great stuff, man. And uh, in that interview, we talked about, you know, firstly, the, the surface level of, you know, the importance of it, but we also got to towards a conspiracy theory level of, you know, how they've got people on the inside who are trying to hack us. They've worked out what makes us tick and they've built, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter. They've built this program specifically to make us addicted, which mm. is uh, evil. I love how all you conspiracy theorists... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you... Mate, you don't separate <laughs> mate, yourself. I'm not, I'm not part of this, mate, this d- group. Mate, you, it's always they. Like, oh, they're doing... Who's the fuck? Who's they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're, they're putting, they're mate, putting iodine in the water to make us all dumb and we'll destroy a pineal <laughs> gland and all this kind of stuff. Jesus. Mate, for someone who's not in it, mate, you seem to know a hell of a lot about... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, mate, so the next one, uh, the second last one we've got actually is uh, Gretchen Rubin who was a successful lawyer and then she left that after a long career, she started doing this bit of a side hustle, I guess, and left to write books. So the, uh, she did, a, uh, her biggest one that took off, you know, Oprah level took off and got spread everywhere was called The Happiness Project, which is all about happiness. And then she did uh, a book about habits called Better Than Before, the book that we reviewed called The Four Tendencies and her most recent one is Out of Order, in a Calm. The first question I want to ask was that your work seems to have uh, really resonated with people. Uh, in, is happiness something that we all you know, feel like we don't have enough of? Is it something that everyone seems to be striving for more of? 
You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that for me and I think for a lot of people, the bigger challenge is just that we forget to think about it. You know, we're just busy with our everyday lives. We're managing our to-do list. And so we don't stop and think like, am I happy? How could I be happier? What are What's the low-hanging fruit for how I could make my life richer and more fun and easier and with less negative emotion? Um so I and I do think that for most people, if they stop and think about it, they do see opportunities where they could have deeper engagement with their family or better relationships with their friends or they could do more to uh, boost their health and their energy. Um, so I think it's a really good thing to stop and think about because for most people, there is action that, you know, with things that don't take a lot of time, energy or money that we can do that will make us happier. Good stuff from the great Gretchen. Uh, we're going to end it with our... Big Papa Man, who's a big papa in every sense no, of the word papa. papa. Uh, he's our favorite author of their, our favorite books. Mm. Um, our number one is Laws of Human Nature. Real dream guest. It's like, it's not very often you get to, I mean, if there's anyone in the whole entire world that I'd love to just sit down and speak to for one hour, it'd be Robert Green. Mm. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often. So, we did a lot of preparation for this one. And uh, he didn't disappoint. He was full of gold in the interview. And it was, yeah, one of the best things, best conversations I've ever had. Mate, we could talk to him for days, I reckon. He also did The 48 Laws of Power, which we've done on the show previously. He's done a book, Mastery, which we'll probably do in season four. And also uh, The 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction, The 50th Law. And as you said, mate, our number one book of all time for both of us, The Laws of Human Nature. Mate, they're all epic books. They're massive, you know, encapsulating thousands of years of history and applying it to you know power or mastery or human nature uh, mate they're big books but they're well and truly worth a read the first snippet we've got here he talks about uh, empathy which is you know from the laws of human nature he talks about the law of narcissism and that we're all so self-centered we all love ourselves but loving ourselves doesn't help us so much we need to learn to turn that self-love outwards and start to think more about other people and become more empathic yeah, well, empathy is a big theme in the book. And, um, you know, a lot of people write books about it and use that word. And I don't find the way that people describe empathy very helpful. Like, I want to know how it could be something that could be used in everyday life. And my idea is that empathy is not necessarily an intellectual process. It's not something necessarily with a bunch of ideas and bullet points that you can put into practice. Empathy is a mix of a feeling, a visceral feeling, an emotion that it can't put into words and rational analysis. The two must go together. So, you know, when you meet a person for the first time, you have to train yourself to stop your interior monologue and to be very interested, to, to be outer directed, to put yourself in their position so that's the first step, and, and I make the point in the book that you're never going to be able to practice empathy unless you are genuinely interested in other people. So really what makes people self-absorbed is they think that they're more interesting than other people. Their thoughts, their ideas, they're locked in that because it's more interesting than, than, than the salesperson at Starbucks or whomever. But I want to make the point that people are actually much more interesting than you think. And you want to try and get into their world. It's like when you go see a movie and there's some interesting character on the screen. You're fascinated by them. 
I want you to think of the people that you encounter in everyday life as characters in a movie. They are fascinating. They have deep childhood wounds. They have interesting ideas. They have a dark side. They have a shadow. They have strange dreams at night that they never reveal. They wear a mask in front of you, but behind that mask, all sorts of weird things are going on. So you need to be interested in people. And once you're interested in them, you have to use your imagination and sort of see what would it feel like to be them, to get inside of that. And what you want to get is just a sense of the emotions, the, the mood, the feeling, the tone that people give off, not just the words that they say. Mm, so, mate, that's some really deep stuff. Uh, and he really slaps you up in the book, which is his whole intention, which we'll speak about in a second. But this is where he really slapped me up is just the understanding that I am a deep narcissist and so are most people. And the only way to move past that is to just to fully first of all acknowledge that you're a narcissist. I mean, for all of us, like say if a thousand people died on the other side of the world uh, compared to your boss sends you a weird email uh, and makes you feel uncomfortable, you're going to be thinking about your boss's email for the next 48 hours. You're not going to be thinking about the 2,000 people who died of hunger on the other side of the world. So we need to apply this in everyday life. When we sit down and, and speak to people, there really is no upside if you're just in your own head. There's a massive upside if you can get out of your own head and get into the other person and understand what their emotions are and what they're going through. And it's kind of counterintuitive. If the goal is to attract attention, your usual approach is to focus on yourselves and talk about yourself. But a better approach is actually to focus on them using empathy and then you're paradoxically you're going to be receiving the attention. So the next banger we're going to finish it off on is uh, how he speaks about the openness and willingness to change uh, for, for everybody. How confident are you in, uh, in people's willingness to change, especially, especially as, as we get older? Well, um, it gets harder to want to change as, as we get older. Um, you know, a lot of people read self-help books. It's a huge genre. I'm actually, you know, obviously categorized in that. So that means that people are searching for something that will help them change their lives. But a lot of the time people are looking for kind of shortcuts. They want to just sort of hear something. They want easy answers for a change. And so that reveals the fact that people have the desire, but the desire isn't really strong enough to lead to, any, to anything lasting. Sometimes you have to get in a position of desperation. You have to be so frustrated with a problem or so frustrated with yourself that you're willing to try something. But, you know, I do a lot of um, consulting work with powerful people, CEOs, people in politics, etc. And I'm always amazed that they come to me with a desire for change, but really they just want to hear ideas that that that, that kind of that are already in their mind. Mm. They don't want to hear things that were going to require effort. They don't want to hear things that mean they have to alter how they do things. They don't want to hear things that go contrary to their own opinions about you know they think that they are basically have good ideas and strategies, and they want me to confirm that. So most people desire change but they're not serious enough they're not yet at that point of desperation you know and so also as we get older we get the feeling that we know better than others that we have the right idea we get more rigid 
you know so we lose that ability to want to to be open to other people's ideas so i don't know what the percentage of it is but i know in my books i really 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 want to make an effort to hit you over the head and make you really want to change yourself so you read the laws of human nature and and i'm kind of brutally honest mm. with you i'm revealing all of these things about yourself that you can't escape, I repeat over and over again. You think other people are narcissists? No, you're a narcissist. You think other people are aggressive? No, you're aggressive. I'm not gonna let you wiggle free. I'm gonna show you who you are, and I hope in doing that, I can spark the desire to change. Because if you don't understand who you are and your own flaws and your own weaknesses, how are you gonna be able to change? And so the problem with a lot of self-help books is they flatter the reader, and I don't like flattering the reader. I want to show the reader, you know, the real truth. I want to hold a mirror up to you. Because if you don't understand who you are, how are you going to be able to change yourself? Bang. Bang, yeah. And he, yeah. he does hit you over the head. Yeah, he does. Mate, good. I think it's super important. I think it's a, it was the perfect way to end there and that we all do need to change in some way. Uh, it's You know, we've touched on it throughout this episode that we do need to change. And the first step is firstly being aware of where, where you are currently. And as you said, you know, some books are nice and fluffy and uh, tell you what you want to hear. But some books really show you, no, this is truly where you are. And if you want to change, this is how you need to do it. So I think it's something we all need to be open to, man, open to changing. Mm, absolutely. There's only upside to... Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> you're going to say tinkering. Probably were, yeah. <laughs> There's only upside to change. You know, if you, if you keep on tinkering <laughs> flowing up the vines of life to the top of the apple tree that's it mate <laughs> there's only apples <laughs> most of all thank you everybody for listening to the show and um it really means a lot we don't get paid for this i mean we got a book depository link yeah we get about fuck we've probably got three books out of it yeah yeah, yeah three books so we got basically nothing out of the book depository link so the only reason we do it is to actually really hopefully help other people in some way we're obviously doing it to some extent to help ourselves mm. but the real fuel that keeps us going is understanding that we're really making a difference to someone if not us directly they might hear from us which sparks them to buy the book and mm. then that has a big impact on them so that's the thing that really gets us going and up and about yeah definitely we definitely certainly appreciate everybody listening as i sort of said at the start we started the podcast as a test and there was all these benefits of reading and communication skills and uh, confidence and you know the sixth or seventh benefit would be that maybe someone listens one day and I think it, we started with two or three listeners and it gradually built up from there and our next goal after that was maybe get one person to read one book that would change their life somehow and we're uh, thankful that there are all these people around the world listening to this we hear from people occasionally uh, of you know episodes that have connected with them or books that they've checked out as a result uh, so a big thank you for, for listening so far. We've done 200 episodes now and uh, we're looking forward to the next 200. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, quite recently, a lot of the reviews we've been getting on iTunes have been a little bit more, uh, say, emotionally charged in a very positive way for us, which has meant a really great deal. Uh, so if you want to show your appreciation for the show, that's one of the things that we'd love for you to do is just leave a review. Um, gives us a bit of that social proof but at the same time, just really 
uh, does make us feel good and gives us a lot of fuel to keep on moving. Yeah, it definitely does. As you say, mate, it take, we're taking more and more time and seeing how, you know, a couple of sentences here of someone who's enjoyed the show or someone who's made a change is just... Uh, gives us that next little bit of juice for the next couple of episodes to keep going. 